0: just want to invite you to flip or tap your way on over to uh, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. And we have now been in the Beatitudes for six weeks, I think. This is our fifth Beatitude. Um, and this is the preamble to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is, uh, in some sense, a uh, a place that uh, we're groomed for the Sermon on the Mount, to encounter those teachings that Jesus will lead us into. Um, and we will be in the Sermon on the Mount for, Lord willing, all of 2022. I don't, I don't know yet. We'll see the pace. Um, but something that I've noticed in myself as we've been reading these Beatitudes as a, as a community is that um, I often feel exposed. And they also—the um, Beatitudes don't really, on the front end, come with a lot of bite— They feel kind of sanitized, like I've heard these before. And so this this time that we have together... is an opportunity for us to sit. And and I don't know about the word marinade, but I guess it's helpful in this case, but to actually like sit and allow the scriptures to go to work on us through the power of the Spirit. We have this conviction that, that God actually has an interest in you and me and a community who's taken up allegiance to be with Jesus. And that, yes, I totally affirm that God can speak to you through the Spirit and that it'll be confirmed, like the truth of those words will be confirmed through the scriptures, and so we turn there now, so I ask you to stand as an act of responding to God with your body to hear our teaching text today from Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, and go ahead and let's all read that together. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So I don't know if this is like cheating in terms of a sermon, but the the question that comes to my mind at at the start of most teachings is, what does this mean? And that might sound like an obvious thing, but that's a uniquely human thing, this uh, aspect of meaning-making. Like, I don't think uh, like a chimpanzee who has the capacity to read is going to then go, well, what does it mean to be merciful? But seriously, like what does it mean? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Is this about being nice? Is this about just, I, I don't know, being calm and collected and when trouble comes your way or trouble happens to you, not returning that trouble in kind? Is, is it essentially just nice stuff? I'm really curious, like, if you, you don't have to say it aloud, but what does Jesus mean? And then I think about, well, what are we doing here as a community of Jesus, a community trying to follow the way of Jesus? Well, we're actually trying to be formed by the teachings of Jesus. So we would do well to have an idea of what Jesus means if we're going to be a community formed by the way and teachings of Jesus. You see where I'm going here? Like, this might not be as sanitary as we want it to be. There might be some stuff that's potent in these words of Jesus. But when Jesus talks about mercy, the curiosity I have is um, like, is he talking about mercy the way that I talk about mercy? Does, does Jesus use mercy? Does he like embody mercy in the way that I would expect him to embody mercy? Or, or is there uh, something else going on here? is is there this idea of i don't know withholding judgment or forbearance or something like that or like if i do stuff acts of mercy now then i'll get that later like what what is going on what does jesus mean by mercy and i i actually think that jesus's teachings are a place for us to ask questions and and so that's what we'll continue to do. And, and the goal of questions, especially in the context of church, it's not to elicit suspicion or doubt of Jesus' teachings. I think it's actually the opposite. It's that Jesus' teachings are so rich and deep that that's where they lead us, is to ponder and consider and look at the various aspects. See, uh, Jewish rabbis have this idea of talking about the scriptures like a gem. And as you turn that gem, that stone, and light refracts off it in different ways, you see um, beauties and aspects of that gem that you never saw before. So that's what we're trying to do, and questions help us to turn the gem, this thing that is in front of us, namely the scriptures. And so this is where I want to start, is, is with these questions, so that we might slow down and then expose some of the assumptions that we bring with us To the text. How how does that sound? We're just going to slow down, expose some assumptions. So let's just start with this one, we'll just call it a surface assumption. And I think it's this, uh, that my English Bible provides the plain meaning of the text. The technical term, if you want to be like nerdy about it, is the perspicuity of Scripture. (laughs) That there is a clarity to the Scriptures when I open them. And I'm not trying to disparage our English translations, they are beautiful and I think they bring us where we need to be. But again, what does Jesus mean when he says mercy? Does he mean what I mean when I say mercy? And this assumption that my English Bible brings me to the plain meaning of the text is just, is just there. And so, I, I get that a, a concept like the perspicuity of Scripture needs nuance, and we're not going to provide that in, in its full today. If you want to have those conversations, give me a little shoulder tap after. I love those conversations. But to keep us on track. According to the surface assumption that I imagine many of us carry, if Jesus says mercy, then it simply means that. It just means mercy. And so how how do we, English speaking, uh, most of us, like how do we define mercy? Well, this is from uh, uh, folks at Merriam-Webster. Mercy is compassion or forbearance shown especially, and check this out, to an offender or to one subject to one's power. This idea of leniency or compassionate treatment. The example they give is uh, they begged for mercy. Do you see that mercy framed in this way is about power dynamics? Power over, power under, who has the capacity to exert or give mercy and who does not? I'm just curious, when you hear this definition of mercy, does it make sense? uh, Like, does it map on to your working understanding of mercy and forbearance, this idea of withholding judgment? And if it does, if you're one of those who is like nodding your head, then you could actually read the beatitude like this. Blessed are you who withhold judgment, for it will be withheld from you. Now, how does that sound? If I'm honest, that sounds quite nice, because then I know the equation, and I can kind of control and indicate, I have an idea of what the outcome will be. But again, and this might be a little annoying now, what does Jesus mean? Is this idea of forbearance and withholding judgment, is this the blessed mercy that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude? And knowing um, that this church is not one who likes to shout out their answers, I, we'll continue to ask these questions. And maybe you're like a little nervous to say yes or no. But now there's all this build-up, so you're like, I'm gonna hold my answer. And then you, you why don't you say? Well, we'll just continue to ask questions. And I'll, I'll like when I hear this this definition of mercy, I'm not scandalized like that maps pretty well onto how I would talk about mercy or if I was asked to give like a dictionary definition without having one in front of me, I'd probably get something close to that. This idea of withholding judgment that, yeah, if somebody's described as withholding judgment, I'm like, yeah, that person's merciful. That, that's intuitive, I guess, to me in the context that I live. And so if you, you would see that, that would actually hold up that surface assumption that my English Bible gives me the plain meaning of the text. But I, I, I wanna invite us, with these questions in mind and kind of the posture of a learner, to maybe lean a little bit further. And so, in interest of slowing down, let's just consider how we use this word, how, how we actually uh, put mercy in play in our day to day. And I'm just, this is, this is what I mean. Uh, when I use mercy, it mostly comes out in this little prayer, Lord have mercy unless you think um, more highly of me than you ought, like it's not me with like a prayer rope working through the Jesus prayer or something like that, and then with like dabbing my tears, Uh, like that would be a beautiful picture. If you want to think of me that way, you go for it. Um, That's not how I use Lord have mercy. Um, And here's a a story to frame that up. Uh, A couple weeks back, me and Griffin. And I I don't know if I'm ever going to stop sharing stories about Griffin, but it seems to be just where my life is at the moment with a three-year-old trying to figure out what it means to be human. So Finn and I are at Campbell's up on university and we're going to do some grocery shopping. And what I know about my son is uh, that he is what I like to call grabby. You are familiar with this. The aisles are a little bit more narrow at Campbell's so they can get more fine goods inside of there. And so they have carts. And so if you ever go shopping with Finn, the put him in a cart, confine his tiny body. And so that's what we do. We go in and it's going great. We're meandering about, which is my pace. And eventually we get to the checkout and it's lovely. I mean, we get all our goods. We are set to go in and we push the cart in, but you know, like you can't just push the cart in with your kid in it. So you take the kid out. And so I'm kind of um, negotiating the bag and the kid. And so I set Griffin down to get the things out and boom, he is off. And... I go, oh, goodness, at least that's my memory of it. And before I know it, he is over at the bulk food section. He has uh, lifted up a bin and unsheathed a scooper. And with a glimmer in his eye, he looks at me and he goes, and he plunges it in. And while this is happening... I would love to see security camera footage of it, so this is just from my faulty memory. As this is happening, I'm trying to put down my um, groceries, which have, like, glass bottles in them, and so I'm, I'm trying to set those down while running slash walking over in Campbell's, and the words that come out of my mouth are this prayer, Lord, have mercy, child. Um, what does Jesus mean when he says mercy? Like, in, in that moment, I... I needed some mercy. Griffin needed some mercy. The funny thing was that when, we, when I actually like got in a, I, he doesn't, the, the beans that he dips the thing into don't go everywhere. So but Lord did have some mercy in that moment. And uh, we turn around and there's the gal who had checked us out, taking my grocery bags away. Like, whose are these? What's going on? And I'm like, hey, hey, those are mine. So I guess in multiple aspects there were mercy. But is this what Jesus is talking about? And this is my point. Like when we consider a simple word like mercy in the English language, we're using it in different ways. There is a breadth and a depth and a complexity going on there that we would do well to give that same type of attention to mercy in the scriptures. And, and I don't think that this is problematic by any means. That, that the complexity that we find in the scriptures is a signal to the depth and the wonder of Jesus' teachings because mercy, it is more expansive and it is more beautiful And Jesus' words are an invitation to be caught up in that beauty. And so we're going to go there via two routes. The first is through some Bible nerdery. So just bear with me for like five-ish minutes, and then we'll get to a story where we see this mercy embodied. How are we doing? We're doing good. Thanks. Faith. See, this is faith is an example of some inner communi- no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, okay, let's get let's get to this. When you look at the Greek, um, the language that the New Testament was originally written in. And if you ever do this, um, there are like tools that you can use on the Internet to do this. But most of the time, it might just look like this, like a bunch of scribbles on a screen and that's okay that it looks like a bunch of scribbles and i'm not trying to put greek in front of you to say that if you don't know greek then you actually can't get the essence of what's happening in the new testament by no means i'm doing this to to illustrate the breadth of mercy and so i want you to notice that two of the scribbles look pretty similar what you see here the, the third little word and the last word. You'll notice that they, that they start the same. They actually share the same root. And this is, uh, when we translate this root, this is this word, mercy. But when you see them next to each other, this is our beatitude. Blessed, or makarios, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then you stack them up on top of each other. And now you can clearly see that mercy is in view in both of those. And I know this is not revolutionary. We're not learning anything new right now other than we're saying, oh, that's Greek. That's interesting, maybe. But what caught my attention this week was just as our English word mercy has some breadth and complexity, so too does the Greek word mercy, which is in view here. And this is this is actually where it gets really good. So, um, about 300 years before Jesus was on the scene, there were a, a group of Jewish Bible scholars, and in order to remain their inherited tradition, these scholars took up the task of translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek. You see, at that time, this is Alexander the Great. It's the proliferation or the pressing in of Greek language and culture into all spaces in the Mediterranean. And so in order to salvage or to hold their culture intact, they undergo this work to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. This is known as the Septuagint. Maybe you'll see it as a translation offering LXX. This is the work. It's essentially Hebrew thought in Greek words. And what's interesting is that this is the Bible that Jesus grew up around. Hebrew thought, Greek words. And just to, just to see how this works, their translation project, we see this in a psalm that I imagine many of us know, a psalm that talks about mercy. This is Psalm 51, which um, in the English, you might have it memorized. It's, it's um, have mercy on me, O God, according to your great love. Maybe that's something you've committed to memory, but in the Septuagint, that work of Hebrew thought in Greek writing, it looks like this. And I hope you notice, now that we, we have our word here, There it is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your mega mercy. And when we take a look at Psalm 51, right next to our teaching text, Matthew 5-7, what we see is this. Ta-da! Wait a second. Well maybe I only put one up. Okay, so if you have both of those things next to each other, what you're going to see is that you have mercy in the front, you have mercy in the back, and you're saying, why are we talking about this? Why does it matter that uh, in the Septuagint, which is Hebrew thought, in Greek words, mercy is that word, and then in the Greek New Testament, when Jesus is recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, he also uses that same word. Why does this matter? I never liked English or any other language. Why are we talking about this? Well, I want you to think about how you might have memorized this passage. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. In fact, if you look at Psalm 51 in the, in the NIV, that's what you get. So what's, what's going on here? Like, why not according to your mega mercy? Why not according to your great mercy? Well, what the translators of Psalm 51 and our English translations like the NIV do is they actually look back, not to the Hebrew words and Greek thought, they go back to the Hebrew thought. They go back to the place where that psalm was recorded. And here's some more scribbles for you. This is that very line in Psalm 51 in Hebrew. And what you see there, what you're hopefully going to see here in a second, is, um, This word at the end that is bolded. And this is the same thing. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your... And the word that's there is this word chesed. One moment, folks. This is like the dramatic pause. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. I think it's in your notes on your phone if you're following along. So, hey, there it is. Thanks, Kate. So this word, chesed, is a word that maybe sounds familiar. When we were going through the Advent series, we came to this word, chesed, this idea of loyal love, this uh, love that is itself... um, in a, an act. It's something that then God takes up. Like, actually, when God is describing God's character in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, this is the very word that's on God's lips to describe God's self. God says this of God's self, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love, with chesed and faithfulness. You see, it's this word that is then translated into that Greek word, eleos, of mercy. And so back to the beginning, what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy? Could it be that Jesus has a view of mercy with chesed, this idea of unfailing, loyal love at the center? Could this be the case that Jesus has that view of mercy in mind? and i think it's i th- i think it's true In fact, I think that view of mercy would kind of look like this Venn diagram, and you would have, yes, chesed right there in the center, this idea of loyal love, but it wouldn't just be this idea of forgiveness and forbearance. Absolutely, that would be there, but what you would have is this identity of, or this idea of of graciousness and generosity and loyalty and faithfulness and compassion and forgiveness and all of those, and it's not just static, but it's moving and it's fluctuating according to the need of the moment and the drawing of the spirit to actually take up the center of chesed. Could it be that Jesus has a view of mercy with chesed at the center? I I think so to the point that we could even like read a really paraphrased version of the beatitude today is that those who are caught up in the loyal love of God and participate in that loyal love can also count on that loyal love to never run out. I think that this is what Jesus is leading us to in and that in, that in that beatitude that when those who are there hearing about what it looks like to inhabit God's kingdom, that they hear Jesus saying this, that there's blessing upon the merciful, that they will receive mercy, that their minds go immediately to the core, to the center of this loyal love of God. That this roots them in a hope of God's character. And I want us to see this in action. This is our second part. So we're done with the Bible nerdery. Just go ahead and take a big, deep breath. (sighs) Let it out. (sighs) Praise Jesus. Okay. So now we go to the story. And so if you would, you can flip over to your right a little ways to Matthew chapter nine. Jesus has in this scene just um, announced the forgiveness of sins over someone, and he does that in conjunction with healing them. This is the paralytic who's lowered through the roof. This is kind of a, a, like your faith has made him what, like this idea of Jesus sees the faith of the friends and then this person is healed and it's also conjoined with forgiveness. It's this amazing scene. Jesus is demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God. And then we get these words, Matthew chapter nine, picking up in verse nine, this is what we read. As Jesus went on from there, that miraculous healing, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And just pause right there with me. Um, If you're living in this time and place, like, does your mom want you to grow up and be a tax collector? I'll I'll let you know. Uh, No, these are... This is, I guess it depends on who you ask. If you're a Torah observant Jew, it's likely that you despise tax collectors, that you think of them as traitors. These are, are men who have uh, given over not just their allegiance to the Roman Empire, but r- wh- what made Rome such a successful conqueror is that they would go in and for the right price, they would draw people out to essentially extort their own people. See, they had the cultural currency. They had fluency in the language. They knew the people who they were there, like, tolling, essentially. So they're sitting at these booths. The scene would be something like this. Like, you've come in off the Sea of Galilee, and you have a haul of, I don't know, 300 fish that day. And you come to the booth, and you meet Matthew. And Matthew goes, oh, that's a, that's a good haul this morning. Uh, the tax is 80%. You know this. So they go through the thing. Um said, actually, I, I just got noticed that the tax is going to be 87 today. And you, as the Fisher person, has no, no, no way to fight that. Because behind Matthew are people with swords. And you know what those people with swords will do if you try and fight Matthew on this price? They'll take your kneecaps right on out. And you say, well, that's kind of graphic. That's the, that's the type of person that Jesus just approached. And so, yes, if you're a Torah observant Jew, you are not a fan of Matthew. Your mother does not want you to grow up and be a tax collector. This is not the type of person that you approach within. Like, you, if you have to approach them, you do so with extreme caution, And so Jesus, in essence, he just confronts a man with the power of Rome at his back with a single invitation to come and follow him, which is in in Jesus' vernacular, this is his way of saying, come and be my disciple. To to follow Jesus is to take up the way of Jesus. This is Jesus' invitation. He disrupts this man's life with a single invitation, and in doing so, he throws out the cultural script. Jesus has just approached someone who he ought not approach in this manner of invitation. And he throws out the cultural script and the religious expectations. You see, not too dissimilar from how religious institutions construct themselves today, there are strict codes around who is in and who's out. Now, perhaps you grew up in a space where there were certain things that were allowed and certain things that were not allowed. And those things that were not allowed were, I don't know, kind of neutral in the scriptures. Let's just use l- low-hanging fruit here, drinking. Like, oh, you don't, you don't do that. Or dancing would be another one. or That's just, you, you, don't, you don't do that. You're building a fence around the law, so to speak. You're, you're creating a buffer zone so you actually, there's no infraction in your life. This is in place in Jesus' day, too. This strict code around who is in and who's out. And just, uh, do you think the tax collectors are in or out of the religious system? Oh, they weigh out. They're, they are excluded. You see, this, this move by Jesus doesn't just, like, poke at the players of the game. It rearranges everything. It it disrupts everything. Jesus essentially gets rid of the game and puts a new one in play, and he is now at the center. So we get to see what this looks like as the story goes on. Join me in verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, well, that escalated quickly, Uh, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So not only do we see tax collectors, but now we see sinners, which is a moniker most often for sex workers. And so now you see these, I guess, undesirables of the day are dining with Jesus. See, Jesus reminds us what it looks like to encounter the love of God. I just I, I want to belabor this point because mercy is not just a passive thing. I think mercy kind of carries the same uh, cultural significance in our day as meekness like we 're not too stoked on being merciful. I, I, I guess we want others to be merciful with us like last night, I wanted Jessica to be merciful with me for hiding the book under the cushion uh, but other than that i 'm not really looking to be found in a network of the merciful. And yet that's what's going on here. Because remember, mercy has a breadth and a depth and a brilliance that extends beyond how we might understand and exercise the term mercy. Rather, what Jesus does is he gives this call. And he gives this call to Matthew not to change everything on the exterior. Don't, don't, like, don't realign your behaviors over here and then come to me. No, he just says, come and follow me. And I think it actually would look something like this. This is not original to me once you see this graphic here. Uh, This is um, this idea of if if you're into math, this is uh, a center set and a bounded set. And essentially, you know who's inside the bounded set because they meet all the qualifications to be in there. But over here, it's a little chaotic. It's a little swirly. But the reality that Jesus introduces is that with himself at the center, he is inviting people to come. And what's so curious about this is Jesus exists in the bounded set. He, he's a teacher. He is respected. There are other teachers who come up and call him rabbi or teacher. like a, just, And maybe they're just trying to gain some cultural, I don't know, like, they're trying to move close to Jesus or something. But Jesus, all of a sudden within that, starts inviting people who have no, really are not allowed there. And what's so curious then is that people who are seemingly at the center are not oriented towards Jesus at all. They're moving away from Jesus. Does this make sense? What Jesus is doing here in this move, this invitation to, to draw someone in like Matthew is scandalous, See, at the center is that reality of loyal love. And to unpack this a a bit more, I want us just to think about the dynamics of that dinner party. And and you know, it's funny, when you think about who Jesus rolls with, can you think about some of the people, maybe some of you have like all of the disciples' names rattling through your mind right now. But um, if you read through some of those lists, do do you remember who the last one to be listed is? Anybody remember this one? Yeah, bro. Judas is yeah. He's the one who betrayed him. Yeah, Judas. So Judas is listed among Jesus's disciples. Let, let this sink in. The one who betrayed him. Does. Do you think Jesus had an idea of Judas's intentions or his movements? I I don't know. Maybe. And yet Jesus is there. He is not pushing him aside. He's continuing to draw him in. Jesus' life is given over into the authorities because of Judas. Another person who's there is Simon. Do you remember Simon's little descriptor? You can say it aloud. The zealot. So there's this energy, this kind of pulsating, rebellious tone active in the day See, the zealots were those who would actually carry, like hide a dagger in their robes and they would have these little ambushes in the hills and they would take down Roman centurions and people like Matthew. Jesus draws together betrayers, tax collectors and zealots. Come on, like the, the mercy of God on display of Jesus. and. If this feels sanitized to you, if this feels generic, that's why we're sitting in this. Because this is anything but. This is, in fact, the most scandalous thing you could do at the time. And Jesus is there inviting this, having conversations about Jesus' movement toward tax collectors and sinners. We see that many of them are there, and we don't know, maybe they just want to chat up Jesus. He's kind of famous at this moment. We, We have no idea. We're not told. But I, I just allowed my imagination to run wild in, in this text. And I was thinking, man, if this scene was captured today on Instagram, like people saw Jesus, I don't know, like having a pint with a bunch of mafia folks or something like that. How many people would be commenting on that or blowing up Jesus' DMs, like rebuking him of talking about slippery slopes or um, bad company corrupting good morals? Jesus is not phased by these people. And I don't think this then gives us like license to then just live licentiously. No, like there is Jesus, Jesus has just given, delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think he's clear about where he stands morally and ethically? Do you think these people know where Jesus stands? And yet somehow they continue to move toward him. Many come. This is a really annoying passage to read because my guess is that a lot of folks with whom those um, modern categorizations, let's just use mafia and sex workers, I don't know if they would like, be moving toward gravitate today to come and interact with us. But my hope and my prayer is that that would be dramatically flipped upside down. Why? Because the mercy of the living God inhabits the people who call this community home and are learning to live that out. How, how are we doing with this? I hope that this messes with us to our core, because otherwise we stand in odd company. Because these are the people who are annoyed at Jesus. Let's pick up in the story in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, notice who they turned to, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's like Jesus, on hearing this, the next line in verse 12 is on hearing this, it's like Jesus is like, you're going to talk to them, you're going to talk to me. And so he moves in. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this, to Bible teachers, Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. Quoting the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, to move toward Jesus, which Matthew has done, is to all of a sudden enter an ecosystem of mercy. This place where forgiveness and forbearance and loyalty and grace and faithfulness, where all of these things start to come together in the person of Jesus. To move toward Jesus is to move into an ecosystem of mercy, but this is not static. Do you, do you remember when like the lights turned on to Jesus for you? Maybe you were really young. I, I was an undergrad, and I'm sitting at a at a lunch table, and this guy who played lacrosse at Rutgers was asking me. He's like, "So, do you want to do this Jesus thing?" We had just gone through the Romans Road and the Bridge Diagram, that whole thing. And I, like, yeah, like let's let's do it. W- what do we do? <laughs> And the, I mean, I guess it was I got plugged into a church and the, the evangelical machine started just digesting anybody with zeal and eagerness, and so then there you find yourself and you're like, I, I hope that we would remember. Not an ecosystem of who is in and who's out of hostility, of revenge, of bitterness, of drawing new boundaries, of building a fence, but we would remember the ecosystem of mercy that we've been called into with Jesus and that that invitation exists today. In a few moments, we're going to take the bread and the cup to remember that that is a living reality we can participate in. This is the most beautiful thing we can give ourselves to. You see, when the boundary makers and the boundary markers of the righteous were sacrificing the very people Jesus desired to lavish his love on, on the altar of exclusivity, Jesus comes along and extends an invitation to the unlikely and excluded. This is you and this is me. We are the unlikely and the excluded and yet we are totally not. (laughs) Because when I look around the room, we're all white, for the most part, and if we're not, then we have enough cultural cachet to get along in the world. And I don't draw that out to be inflammatory in full, I just draw it out to just just name the thing that we're in, because isn't that part of us moving into that ecosystem of mercy? is to just name the injustices that are around us that we're sometimes complicit in. Because we need mercy in those spaces, that's what we were doing when we are writing those little things. (laughs) We're just naming the places where we need God's mercy. And this is the heart of the beatitude. Restoring an ecosystem of mercy, absent of sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Maybe Jesus is saying to some of us, go and learn what it means. I'm just curious if that what that means for today. So here are just a few thoughts as we close and then I'll read our statements. But perhaps mercy not sacrifice means something like no daughters and sons sacrificed in a war for nation or for the wealthy few. Perhaps mercy not sacrifice means no longer condemning prisoners sacrificed for eye to eye or life for life, but reimagining that space. Or maybe it means um, no longer sacrificing women at the hands of mostly men to stay in power because they've suffered abuses in spaces called the church. Maybe it means no longer sacrificing those on the margins so those in the majority can maintain their positions of comfort. Maybe it means that no longer unborn children are pulled from the womb so close to the light of life and that no pregnant woman is cast into the wilderness to bear the burden of responsibility. Maybe it means no sacrifice and actually mercy. I had a version of this teaching without any of those things in it, but it just doesn't seem to fit the ecosystem of mercy not to name the places where we need it the most. And I have no idea how this little community of 75-ish people are going to attend to those. We're fooling ourselves if, we're gonna, if we think we'll absolve it all, but I think we're also fooling ourselves if we don't enter in it all. We have tiny pathways to do that. Hopefully those pathways become larger and we can join larger ones that are in the community. But if you want to know, like, a heart of mercy, there's people here who you can talk to. I'm thinking of a few with whom you can move toward, and, and Kate maybe is one of them. I, don't, I, I know that you don't like that, but that, if you want to know what that looks like to participate in it, she's a person who I turn to to learn to, to, to pastor me into the way of mercy. And so, again, what does, what does mercy mean? I wonder if it means something like loyal love, and forgiveness, and forbearance, and withholding judgment, and generosity, and graciousness, and all sorts of stuff like that. But I wonder where we need some mercy.